everyone, and welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast with my guest today, Sarai Paula, MD. Sarai is a medical translator living in Germany. She speaks four languages, German, Japanese, Dutch, and English, and she works as a medical translator translating medical texts from German, Japanese, and Dutch into English. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome, Sarai. Thanks. Thanks so much, Rachel. So It's nice to be here. I found, I found you, Sarai, from grazing through multiple YouTube videos, looking for interesting videos about autism, and discovered yours. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to go check out Sarai Paula's wonderful TED Talk that she really bears her soul and really talks about a lot of the challenges that those of us who are actually autistic face every day and don't really get a huge international audience because we don't all get invited to TED Talks. So <laughs> how did that happen? How did I mean, like, this is a huge dream for me. Like if I got invited to do a TED Talk, I would just be over the moon. So how did that come about? Well, it was quite an interesting set of circumstances because I knew someone who was in the kind of the TED, TEDx space in Munster. We had met online when I was still in South, South Africa. And when I came to Germany, you know, it was always something that I wanted to do. I wanted to approach them and say, well, look, I would like to do my own talk. And it took me a while to be in a place where I was, you know, I want to say, you know, I, I, I had to get to feel more settled in Germany and uh, feel more comfortable with how things were going. But eventually I you know, just, I want to say, I picked up the courage to say, hey, look, I'm ready to do a talk. This is my topic. Uh, this is what I'd like to talk about. Is it possible? And they were very receptive. And that was also quite a big surprise because, as we know, most people shy away from the topic of autism. Yes. So I was, I was very, very surprised. And I mean, pleasantly so, obviously. And then I set about the task of preparing my talk. I want to say the initial draft, I was told the initial draft was far too clinical and scientific. Oh, whoopsie. <laughs> so, so, so I I mean the team the team got together and and they coached and supported me in bringing out some of the more human issues that women with autism face. And I feel like we reached a good balance because I I feel like I still got to do a talk that was mine and that you know it wasn't something that they had created, but it definitely I think it came across a lot better with their assistance and I think that's I feel like that kind of collaboration was very important for me because they made my talk more accessible than it had originally been if I had written right. it on my own. Yeah. Right. Well, and they do so many of these. And so they totally understand what people respond to in that incredibly short time frame that they give you. It's like 17 minutes. Mm. Yeah, actually, they said they said we should keep it down to under 15 to give them time for, you know, intro and outro and this Makes and that. Sense. And I was yeah. like, wow, OK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a rough one. <laughs> yeah, it was it was quite tough because <laughs> I'm sure, you know, you had a whole lot to say. So, yeah. So let's talk about. How did you find out that you are actually autistic? So this was an interesting, this is always an interesting question for me because I think, I mean, I've never met an autistic person who grew up thinking that they were 100% like everyone else. You know, they always knew mm -hmm. that they were a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And the same applies to me. I, I definitely didn't have 
the typical social experiences growing up, it was always very difficult for me to integrate into social groups. I mean, there was the added complexity of being, I, I was born in Zimbabwe and immigrated to South Africa with my family. So there were, you know, the cultural issues and that kind of thing, xenophobia and all this sort of stuff. But there was always an under, undercurrent of being unable to maintain friendships. And as I said in my talk, I mean, a complete lack of, you know, intimate relationships with, I mean, in my case, members of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And that, I, I mean, I sort of got by until I was, I want to say 20, I believe I became a freelancer when I was 29. And when I left the work environment, when I left kind of an, because I'd left the medical environment already and I went into a more office-based job and I left that, that was the trigger or that was kind of where it now became very clear that my life was very different from other people's lives. And I noticed how much time I was spending alone. Um, I noticed how yeah. difficult it was for me to get people to spend time with me. I think the most frightening time, the most frightening thing I remember was there was a week that I hadn't left my flat at all, and I went to the I went to the door and I touched the keys and there were there was dust on it. Oopsie! And I was like, this is, and I was like, no, come on, this is this is not normal. You know, no, other people aren't. You know, other people aren't experiencing this. You know, and it was like, <laughs> so. So I tried to speak to a few of the people around me about it. And I must say, of the four people that I spoke to, three of them said, have you ever considered that you might have autism? Oh, interesting. So who were these people? So these were former, one of them was a former uh, schoolmate, someone that I had gone to school with who I'd lost touch with and you know then the usual typical mm -hmm. oh we we found each other on Facebook type of thing right. two of them were fellow medical professionals who were not I mean they were adult, allied health professionals not doctors because I do want to point out that the doctors the people in my class who were medical doctors that I spoke to all told me that it was ridiculous for me to even <laughs> consider that I was autistic and I was just like okay yeah um, <laughs> so just as a quick, you know, segue into the whole thing of doctors not understanding autism, I can confirm, even just from the people that I, you know, people that I went to school with whom I thought would have a better insight um, yes. into it, they didn't. Uh, but the allied health professionals did. So, like, about what year was this? 20, I want to say it was 2011. Yeah, 2011. Okay. Yeah. So, something that I've been discussing with several of my guests is just how new all of this information is, and that it's only been in the last 10 years that women are being recognized as being even possible to be on the spectrum. So, it sounds like you were just coming to this kind of awareness at the same time as the whole rest of the profession was. So, oh. it it's probably not too surprising that the medical doctors who obviously hadn't gotten the latest research or training, that they wouldn't know anything about it. Mm. But what's distressing is that they would just dismiss you out of hand. That's, yes. that's unfortunate. Instead of them going, huh, you've brought something up that's a lack in my knowledge base. I should look into this. No, they go, oh, you, it's ridiculous. You can't have, you know, you can't possibly be autistic. Mm. And that's an inherent problem that I think needs to be solved. When I was discussing this with Sarah Hendricks, and I don't know if you know of Sarah Hendricks, but she's fantastic. She's got some amazing books and videos out there, and I 
highly recommend that you check them out because they're wonderful and very affirming. Mm-hmm. And I was discussing this problem with her, and she felt that women tend to get diagnosed with psychological disorders, and men get recognized for having neurological conditions. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you feel like, is that something that you've experienced? Have people tried to tell you basically, oh, you know, it's just all in your head. You need to drink more water. So, it's hormonal. Yes. You know, had, are I you had, getting some of that? I had I had all, all of the above. Well, I mean, I definitely, I went through a period of time in university where I saw a lot of psychologists. And this was for, I want to say... There was mounting depression, okay, because obviously as a result of the experiences that I was having, I already started to feel like life was unsatisfactory coming out of my teens, right? I I was already Mm. sort of feeling like, no, this is, you know, something is not right here. Uh, There were obviously various experiences were pushing that, but I ended up visiting a number of psychologists and I got, and every psychologist I went to had a different, or every psychologist or psychiatrist that I went to had a different diagnosis, wanted to put me on different (laughs) medication. They had a, you know, I mean, it was a very frustrating experience for me because as we all know there's a certain tendency for people to well let's say for medical professionals to want patients to be cooperative and I was getting this from the perspective that I was being trained to be a medical professional and I was getting this from other medical professionals and they they sort of their attitude was sort of like well just take this tablet and you'll be fine and the tablets had terrible effects on me. You know, I mean, I think people who, and I have nothing against people who truly suffer from depression, taking antidepressants. I think it's a valid method of coping with depression. Uh But I think that, at least in my case, I feel like the diagnoses were inappropriate. The fact that people pushed me to take medication, I feel made things worse and not better. Right. And there was obviously a reluctance to hear my side of things. And, you know, when I tried to explain to them that, look, I think we're treating the wrong thing. You know, people would sort of, yeah, there was a, I definitely got dismissed a lot. And I was told, oh, you know, no, I mean, just give it a chance. Things will work out. Just, you know, Mm -hmm. don't worry, you know. And and I feel like that minimization and uh, dismissive nature is, uh, is very prevalent. And I think it is something that women struggle with specifically. I don't think it's a challenge that men generally have. Right. Did you get diagnosed with borderline personality disorder? No, I was diagnosed with, well, first I was diagnosed with depression and then Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Okay. And then there was a, there was an episode where doctors thought I was either hypomanic or manic or psychotic or, you know, they just didn't know. Uh, That was very entertaining because... (laughs) <laughs> no, it was wow. I mean, I think that was the one of the times where I had to go into a facility for a couple of weeks to uh, be observed and that kind of thing. And the amusing thing was at the end of it, the psychologist said to me, "You know, I, I honestly I don't even know why you had to waste two weeks being here." You know, what I mean, oh, no. <laughs> he, he was like, you, "You just you just paid you know twenty thousand rand for basically nothing because we've clearly oh. seen that once the once the medication was gone and the side effects were gone, you know, you were so much. I mean, you didn't belong here, you know, and that was well. Know, it must have been a there. relief to get the validation that the drugs were making it harder for you 
it seems like it might have been worth the money just to. I will say I will say that did make a huge difference. That did make a huge difference. I think it was uh, this particular psychologist uh, was the first person who sort of identified that I didn't have the way he put it was you don't have herd mentality. You know, you, you are immune mm. to herd mentality. And that was also very helpful because I wasn't up until that stage. And I mean, by then I was, I think, 22, 23 up until that stage, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that we were required to adhere to any kind of <laughs> mentality. I, this was a surprise. This was news to me, you know. <laughs> I hear and, you. Uh, yeah. So this was. I, I think he was. He was one of the people that I. He, he stood out to me because he really sought to understand me, and it was unfortunate mm-hmm. because the facility was far away from where I lived. Uh, I would have loved to have more contact with him, but that didn't. It didn't work out that way. Yeah. Well, I did just recently see an interesting study that suggests that people who are autistic are, in fact, immune to peer yes. pressure. I think that's and very valid. <laughs> I totally agree, because not only am I immune to it, I'm absolutely repulsed by it. If I feel like somebody is trying to pressure me into conforming, then my impulse is literally to run away in the opposite direction. Mm. It feels so dangerous to me. Because we see people doing stupid things all the time with this kind of herd mentality. Yes. <laughs> I want to uh, tell our listeners, all of whom are in the future as of this moment, that currently they just had the third and theoretically final vote on Brexit in the House of Parliament. And they're trying to decide now what they're going to do next. Nobody seems to know what's going on. And to me, the whole thing is just such an example of herd mentality of people just going along because they think they identify with that or something. And and that identification with being British, whatever the heck that means, (laughs) is more important to them than having freedom of movement all across Europe, which baffles me, frankly. (laughs) I don't understand it. And then when I see people like uh, Greta Thunberg, the wonderful Mm. autistic teenager who's leading the charge against climate change, clearly pretty immune to peer pressure, and yet she has been able to bring her peers along with her, that somehow she was able to articulate a message to her peers that had them rallying around her. And I really feel that that is often the role of the autistic, that as a truth teller and as a nonconformist, as the sort of court jester of society, that it's absolutely on us to not go along with the herd and to say, hey, the emperor literally has no clothes. And whether it's a hard deal or a no deal or a soft deal Brexit, it's still madness. <laughs> it's still <laughs> clearly. So now I, I saw that you were discussing Brexit with your sister because we follow each other on Twitter now, which is super mm. fun. And so, do you feel that your sister might also be on the spectrum? We've we've definitely had this conversation between the two of us, and I think yeah, she identifies with the traits of being autistic. I feel like mm-hmm. she 
has framed her life and her perception in such a way that she doesn't need a label. Right. The similarities, of course, are striking in our, you know, life stories and our uh, life patterns. And she faces a lot of the same issues. She just doesn't seem to have that need for a... I mean, I think that's also an example of not needing... Of a kind of a lack of herd mentality in a way as well. Because she doesn't... She's she's not even interested in whether or not it's something that requires a name. She just kind of gets on with it. Whereas mm. I was very... For me, it was very concerning. It was very concerning. Well, that's really interesting does she have the same fascination with language? No, she has a very different interest in the sense of, well, I should put it like this. I think we we, we came from a very academic family. That's the first thing. There were no, mm-hmm. th- there wasn't really space for fun because I do think that my, I mean, definitely my father was uh, on the spectrum. I'm, you know, 98.9% sure. Right. The, the, the missing bit is if he, he unfortunately passed away, so I can't... Uh, you know, it's not something I can confront him with and, you know, possibly persuade him to consider sure. a diagnosis. <laughs> um, but um, very... Hard enough to get them for the living, yes. let alone for those who are beyond the veil. <laughs> Let's start with the people who are still breathing and then we'll work our way back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We can, you know... Um, and I think um, my mother, I mean, I don't want to... See, because she's still alive and she's... She, she she has a very sensitive disposition. So right. I, I, I want to just... Um, Let's respect yes. that. Yeah, we'll respect that. <laughs> Absolutely. But... We'll just pass on that whole question where mom is. We, yes. We love but, you, yes, mom. Yes, exactly. Love you, mom. <laughs> Thank you for producing these this wonderful daughter who I'm so enjoying talking to. And, All right, there. It's, We've got mom squared away. It's, you know, I mean, I think this was... But I mean, it, it's, a, it's definitely a fact that our upbringing, I think, was very unusual for sub-Saharan Africa. It was very unusual mm. for girls of our age. Um, there was a very heavy focus on academics and learning and self-development and, you know, progress and, and very little, and I want to say very little importance placed on sort of fun and enjoyment. And do you know what I mean? Like the, that was not a big yes. thing in our family. Yes. So from that perspective, I think my interests were very strongly in the direction of the natural sciences. And my sister kind of fell into more of the, I want to say she, she was more drawn to economics and how the, how the pieces in the world fitted together as opposed to, I mean, I, I, was, I was more interested in things like atoms and molecules and that kind of thing and minerals and that sort of stuff. But she was always very, more interested in, well, how, how do, you know, why are these people doing this with and, and exchanging these goods or exchanging this money in this way, you know, why, why, are they, why have they chosen to do it like that? Which has now become her, I mean, she's pursued a career in academia. She's now heading towards her, she's about to start doing her PhD um, in Wonderful. economics. And yeah, and I think from that perspective, I feel like we, we have the same approach to wanting to understand how the world works. We just did it in two very different Yeah, you're just focusing ways. on different, in different yeah. areas. So a huge part of my mission for doing this podcast is finding people who are not sure if they're autistic. Let's say they're autistic curious. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way of putting it. I like that. I like that autistic curious. Yeah. And trying to find out, do they have a place in this culture? 
one thing that I will say for every single autistic person that I have had the good fortune to talk to is that we do tend to overanalyze things a bit and yes. we can have a sense of imposter syndrome of feeling like, well, am I just fooling myself into thinking I'm autistic? Which then I realized that I was wondering if my autistic brain was trying to fool me into thinking that I'm autistic. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you have you have hit on one of the key points. I feel like this entire journey for me definitely I think there have been many times where I have questioned I mean I, I want to just state that I rebelled against my diagnosis when I got it. I feel like the picture that was painted to me of what an autistic person was was not something that I was prepared to, you know, lean into. And, you know, it wasn't something that I looked at and went, oh, yes, that's, that sounds amazing. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Perfect. This explains everything. My life is going to be fantastic from now on. Not, not at all. Not at all. Initially, I rebelled against the diagnosis, and it took a good two years to come to terms with it. And then... Two years? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And so how old were you when you started that process and then finally got to the end of it and were like, okay, this is me. Well, let's start off by saying... Autism diagnosis in South Africa, it was impossible to get one. There was no way that I right. could uh, be diagnosed as an adult with autism at the time in South Africa. There was but just when, no... when you started, like, you know, kind of like what stage were you in your life? Were you in your 20s? Were you... Had you reached 30 yet? No, I was 29. Okay, so I was 29 when I started suspecting that I was autistic. Okay. And then, so I immigrated to Germany. And I must say, part of the drive to immigrate to the EU was because I knew the chances of me being able to get a diagnosis were higher here than, wow. yeah. They, that was definitely a big, a big push for me to, to come oh specifically to, to the EU because I had read about their fantastic centers in Cologne, Hanover, I mean, now there are a number of organizations all over the country that are easily accessible. But from when I was in South Africa, you know, the ones that were producing a meaningful research and, and that I would trust with making that kind of diagnosis were in select centers around the country. And I specifically chose to be in areas where those centers would be accessible to me. Wow. So this literally took you on a journey. Yes, I mean, yes, yes, it really did. We talk about going on this journey of diagnosis, but that is the most literal of literal ways. Yes. <laughs> you know, because it's so interesting when I hear, for me to hear people say, I've been diagnosed, I've known that I was autistic since I was a child. I was diagnosed at the age of five, six, ten, you know, for me, it's just, I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm just like, wow, you know? But for me, yeah. I was 31 when I immigrated to Germany, and it was in that same year that I got my diagnosis. And I have to preface this by saying, I went through the assessment process, because there, there are a number of stages to diagnosis in Germany. You have to undergo an extensive assessment, and then they let you know, usually via letter, because this is Germany, you know, they're all very... <laughs> bureaucracy is basically the order of the day here so right you know everything every, everything has to get put in writing and filed and that kind of thing so you get a letter uh, telling you the likelihood of your autism spectrum diagnosis and then after that you are supposed to go back to the center or you know wherever you were diagnosed and have your skills assessed to determine what level of disability 
you have as a result of your diagnosis. And I want to say very strong, I didn't do that part. I didn't, I broke off the process. Once they told me that I was autistic, I was like, that's all I needed. That's all I needed to know. And I never followed up in terms of getting a grading for my disability because I, I always had the fear that, I think this is something that all autistic people will know and understand. There's a certain fear that you're going to get discriminated against. If you, if, I mean, I work as a freelancer, so it's not a problem for me at the moment. But if I ever mm-hmm. wanted to go and look for employment, having that piece of paper would be a disadvantage to me. Because people right. would look at it and go, oh, she's autistic. Oh, so there are things that she can't do, you know. Mm-hmm. Because autism is so poorly understood that we would have to completely educate the person that we're handing the piece of paper to. And then already, mm. already we're a pain for them. Already we're... Yes, <laughs> we're, we're, yes, yes, yes. Already we're more work than they wanted compared to, you know, Susie down the hall who's just shows up with her references and gets the job. So I can <laughs> totally understand that. So did you know German before you applied to go to Germany? I specifically learned German to come to Germany. Yeah, once I I did my... So you wanted to find out that you were autistic and you wanted to know that so badly that you learned German and immigrated to Germany. Yes. <laughs> See, when you say it like that, it sounds like I put in so much effort, you know, and I was well, oh, so determined. And I must say, I must say at the time, you see, because for me, when, you know, the way I felt like it was the culmination of many points of interest in my life. Okay, so I have always been fascinated by Germany as a country. It. All right, but I'm going to interrupt you for just a sec, Sarai, because the fact that you did all that is, let's face it, I can't even be bothered to go across town to find out. music to me this is so amusing because i've never thought about it from that perspective see i'm i this is why i say to me to me it's sort of like oh germany was the place that i was always supposed to end up in you know so it was just a no i think you're absolutely right and i feel like a lot of times autistic people can be seen if we're not seen as being autistic we tend to be seen as clever and very intuitive And yet I feel like that intuition is often actually the result of us just recording lots of little tiny bits of information over the course of our lives. And then Mm. we have those little bits of information accessible to us to make decisions that in a way that non-autistic, that holistic people don't necessarily have at their disposal. So somehow throughout your life and throughout your growing up, you got this impression of Germany that when you needed a place to identify you correctly for being autistic or not, that you knew that Germany was a place that could do that for you. And you were right. Yeah, I think that's (laughs) that too. It was a, it was a huge gamble. It was definitely a huge gamble. And I feel like I'm very fortunate that it worked out the way it did. But again, I think for me, listening to, you know, especially listening to you talk, I'm struck by the sense of like, yes, actually, there are lots of people around the world in many different countries who struggle to get a diagnosis, who struggle to find people who are willing to understand and and validate what they're going through. 
But it is true. I don't know any of them who have, you know, literally, you know, uprooted themselves from... Learned from, another language. Was, yes, learned another language. You know, <laughs> and, and went and, to the opposite and, side and, of the yes. world. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a good point. And I was, and I definitely feel like that, you know, that drive uh, to do that and... And coming to Germany, that was a, yeah, it was, yes, the decision was based on many different, yeah, to put it differently, you know, there were cues, you know, to me that, Mm -hmm. oh, okay, maybe, maybe those people will get it, you know, maybe these people don't quite get it, but maybe those people will. And I think, and I think it pays to mention that I think the rest of the world, I mean, when we think of an autistic person, I don't think the image is very far from what we think a stereotypical German person is like, you know, I think... It's worth mentioning that the, the stereotypical images that we have in our minds of German people, I mean, I don't know about where you're from, but we definitely think of them as, you know, punctual, pedantic, mm-hmm. uh, overly focused on rules, not very tad, emotional, not very expressive. So, and obviously not to insult any German listeners. I mean, I live here. I love Germany. It's my home, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there's certainly... There is a considerable amount of overlap between the stereotypical image of what German people are like and the kind of stereotypical image of what, and I'm going to specify and say the kind of the male autistic pattern that we have, the image in our mind of what an autistic person is. Yeah, there's definitely quite a bit of overlap. Yeah, so that's... Just thanks for that perspective. This is (laughs) very positive for me. (laughs) So you landed in Germany... And you got your diagnosis. And so this happened when you were 31? Yeah. And I think that this is important because while certainly while we're kids and teenagers and then even going through our 20s, even though in our 20s we're very much feeling like we're adults and people certainly are adults in their 20s, we still sort of have the feeling like we're not quite sure how we're going to turn out yet. (laughs) Yes, very true, very true. And so when certain things don't happen by the time we're 29, say, and we're like, well, gosh, if I was going to get married and have children by the time I'm 30, that's not going to happen, is it? Because getting to 29, you're like, what's going on here? So I suspect that probably a lot of people begin to have those questions in their 30s. I, I know that I did. So you're in your 30s and you're going, okay, this is not what everybody else is doing. I'm getting this diagnosis. And then after you had gone to Germany and learned the language, and then it's, and I want to be really respectful about this because you're not alone in this. A lot of our listeners are struggling with this very process right now, which is why I'm kind of drilling down a little bit Mm. into it. But it took you two years to feel comfortable saying it out loud to yourself, saying it perhaps out loud to your family. What was that process like? Did you feel confused? Was it harder than usual to leave the house? Or was it something that you just kind of segmented off into another part of your brain and kind of disassociated from? 
What was your internal climate like as you were going through that process? It's a very, you know, taking myself back to that time. I want to say I spent a lot of time running away from the diagnosis. Okay. This was a time when I feel like it would have been better for me to take some time for myself and maybe ease off the workload because I tend to take on, okay, I mean, I'm just going to say quite bluntly, you know, because I don't have uh, social um, interactions in life normally, I tend to have a higher capacity for work. And when I became a freelancer, that got, that went a little bit out of control. Okay. So I took on way more work than I should have. I want to assure you that even in times when, you know, whether I'm stumbling around. So uh, the lovely thing about editing is I get to cut the things out where I sound like an idiot. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's always great. Always great. Don't, and don't worry about it. Please don't feel nervous about it at all. No, I just... <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I laughed so hard I forgot what I was talking about. Um, let's see, where were we? So we were just saying, I was just saying... Yeah, working hard because, you know, there aren't the social contacts. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we all do that. I feel like, well, I don't want to say we all because obviously not not all of us do that. But let me just say that the autistics that I know well, we like that. We Mm. like that feeling of being full. Did you ever play Tetris? Yes, yeah, lots of video games. So, but yes, lots I did video- play yes. Same, same. <laughs> That's another conversation. Yes. <laughs> I love the video games. But there's that feeling when you get a whole row filled. And I feel like when we set up a schedule of activities for ourselves, that we like that Tetris feeling. We like mm. to feel like we are fully occupied and that our brains have something interesting to think about, you know, a hundred hours a day, you know, something even to work on while we're sleeping. So Uh I feel like that's a really common and a really positive trait. And that what happens though, is that often we're terrible at pacing. And so we'll put a tremendous amount of time and energy into too many projects at once, and then it's too much and we need to rest. Then we need to have a few down days. This is especially true for me as I get older, that mm-hmm. I need more and more of rest time in between those giant, you know, Tetris-filled kind of brain spaces. And I still get more done in those days of activity and then a few days of rest than I think most people do in a whole month. So (laughs) we should feel good about this is what I'm getting at. I want you to feel good about this. (laughs) It's a very, very good point. And I can honestly say I fully agree. (laughs) So, So you were doing all this stuff and you were filling all that brain space that you didn't want to think about being autistic with these other perfectly understandable and money-making activities. Now, let's be clear, you weren't out, you know, visiting the red light district. You weren't (laughs) weren't obsessing with with online gambling. You were working. (laughs) 
this is I want to say there were two there, there was there was another aspect to it there was another aspect to it because I discovered a game called Ingress I don't know if you've heard of that oh it sounds vaguely familiar but we're talking 2000 yeah this was 2011 20 yeah oh yeah 2011? so 2013 sorry no 2013 it came out in 2012 2013 it sort of peaked in 2014 15. And then it was made by the same company that made Pokemon Go. Ingress kind of waned in importance and significance and Pokemon Go took over, so to speak. These were games that were, you know, you had to, you had to play on your smartphone, but you had to walk around in the real world. And I had this schedule, I had developed the schedule of... You know, I mean, I, I, sorry, I'm just, I'm flashing back to this time of having like two extra batteries for my laptop that were always charged so I that I could go that. out and I could go out and play Ingress. But no matter where I was, I could stop and set up my laptop, do half an hour of work, play for half an hour, do half an hour of work. But, you know, so it was really, it was this precision planning of like, I'm going to go here today. I'm going to go there today. You know, I had a, a schedule of towns that I was going to visit and places and things I wanted to do in the game. But then I also had the work on the other hand and, and the schedule of work that I had and this, you know, and it was just, I remember I was never kind of sitting down, thinking about it, letting myself kind of come to terms with this. I was always on the go and I was always trying to get out there and trying to, yeah, as I said, run away, run away from the fact that I had this, I'd received this diagnosis, which explained obviously the diagnosis. And I'm sure hopefully you can relate to this as well, that it explains a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, unfortunately, from a certain perspective, well, from, well, let's say from the ablest perspective, it closes a lot of doors yes. because you have to learn to accept that there's certain things that are not going to go away. You're not going to become better able to deal with one of the simplest things that I always have to explain to people, sunlight, you know, um, mm-hmm. I'm never, I'm never going to, no one's ever going to give me a tablet or have a therapy session that is going to make me capable of being able to tolerate the brightness and the heat on my skin and the, when you when you sweat and you have a layer of you know moisture between you and your clothing and you know, nothing is going to make that easier to deal with nothing is going to make mm-hmm. uh, eye contact easier to deal with you know there's no okay I did read a study that there is a medication that people have studied in terms of you know that makes it easier for autistic people to make eye contact but the but again the side effect profile is somewhat intolerable so it's not it's not a practical solution well, and it's such an easy thing to fake. Uh, yes, you that's know, also very true. Very true. Very true. Just look at look at people's third eye, the point right in between their eyebrows. They will not know that that yes, the the what the the, the nose, the little cupid's bow is usually a good exactly. one for me. You know? That's a good one. <laughs> yes, there's so you know there, there's so many workarounds that we have to doing these things, but I think a diagnosis a diagnosis sort of makes it final that these things are always going to be hard for you. It's not like having a diagnosis meant, ah, uh, okay. Uh, I mean, like the, I, I want to say classically in, in, in medicine, you kind of think of it as a diag- think of a diagnosis as something that uh, leads to a certain form of treatment. And this is a diagnosis that does not lead to, tre- no. in, in fact, it leads to, you know, I mean, they kind of send you off on your way and tell you, okay, well, now you have to learn to deal with this. And that's, yeah, that's good luck. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Bye. You know, we've done our part. Now it's your job. And you're sort of like, well, you know, where, where do I even begin? And and I think that's that's definitely quite sad. And I think mm-hmm. 
that is something that I would love to see change. You know, there, there shouldn't be this attitude of, oh, well, you know, I want to say our statistics are now looking great because we've, we've picked you up as well. We, we haven't missed a diagnosis, you know, and, and that's awesome. But, you know, what happens to me thereafter? And that, yeah, so... Uh, I, yeah. I totally understand that, yeah. and I'm sure our listeners can too, because when I accepted that I'm autistic, it's very much like you said. It was a relief to have all this explained, but there were dozens, you know, who knows, maybe hundreds of futures that I felt closed down on me at that moment. Mm. Now, I'm never going to be part of like a big organization, that's never going to happen for me. And this idea that if I just applied at the right company with the right job in the right career field, that I would be embraced with open arms and taken in and valued for my contributions, that that's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. I'm always going to be on the outside of those kinds of experiences. And that's very sad. Not only is it just difficult because nobody wants to feel left out, but that's where the freaking money is. If I can't do that, then I have zero economic security at all. And while that's always been difficult, even in my late 50s, I still held out the hope, well, okay, I'm a dignified middle-aged woman at the peak of my employment skills surely somebody will recognize me and no that's yeah that's a really sad thing to to and i I mourned that a great deal i mourned the fact that i didn't understand these things about myself when i was a mom because there's no question that i would have been a better mom i would have cut myself some slack in some situations and in other situations I would have just not attempted certain things at all <laughs> which would have which would have been better like like I should never have tried to join the local parent teachers association <laughs> oh, I can just imagine I can just imagine I should not mm, have mm, kept mm. trying to speak up in certain meetings I should have just gone you know what yep I could say that and it would be true, but nobody is going to take it well. So I just need to find another yes. way. I recognize, and I'm sure our listeners recognize that feeling of loss of having to give up all these ideas of the person that you thought that you could become. So you're going around uh, Dusseldorf yeah. playing this amazing game which got you out of the house and getting to know your new host country yes yeah while you were working that sounds wonderful and brilliant to me i can't think of (laughs) that's just amazing to me so perhaps going about this in a very autistic way right? (laughs) (laughs) It's a a wonderfully autistic thing to do to go around with our computers and play a video game and translate. Oh my gosh. Like, I feel like you should be your own Pokemon, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) You, You have these amazing superpowers. 
So, okay, so you did that for two years, and then what was the thing that made you go, okay, this is me, I am actually autistic, and I can embrace that about myself? It was, uh... okay, this is a little bit sad to talk about, and I don't want to uh, make my, well, I'm going to preface this by saying I don't want to make it seem like Germany is a horrible place and all Germans are horrible because that's if it was like that I wouldn't live here right that's understood you know um, well it's a sad fact that bad horrible intolerant people are all over the world yes that's very true and I and I can honestly say before I even start saying this my experiences in South Africa were far more, my social experiences in South Africa were far more mm-hmm. traumatic than anything I've ever experienced in Germany. In Germany, Understood. It's, it's, you know, it's been very mild. However, um, the migrant crisis, because now we've got to bring in the global aspect to the whole thing. The migrant crisis in 20, it sort of reached a peak in 2015. This was at the time when really, you know, there were train loads of people flooding across the borders desperately seeking places of refuge all throughout Europe. And this was very disconcerting to the, I want to say, the native populations uh, in the Mm -hmm. country's concern. So all over Europe, I mean, and we all know what happened as a result of it. You know, there was this kind of upswell of uh, right-wing sentiment and and hence hence we ended up with, you know, Trump and Le Pen and, you know... And Brexit. Yes, and Brexit and the whole... Yes, and all of these sort of things happened in... You know, it wasn't something that happened in isolation in Germany and hence I I want to emphasize that this is not... This wasn't a specific issue to me, but it became much harder for me to go out in public and be treated in a hospitable way, let's put it that way, because there was a certain kind of image of... Oh, you look different, so you must be one of quote unquote them, you know, who's coming to quote unquote take over our, you know, the usual narrative. I mean, I'm sure that's what I'm saying. All these types of people are present all over the world, and and the sad part is, generally speaking, they're in the minority, but when they but but they're the most vocal, unfortunately. And right. So going through that experience, it it only takes one to ruin your day. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you can pass thousands of people walking down the street, but if one of them says something rude and hurtful, that's enough. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. And that, that to me became something that made me withdraw. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I was then forced to come to terms with, you know, what I was going through instead of constantly trying to chase this, you know, this or run away from this idea of the things that I couldn't be and kind of face who I am and, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and start to come to terms with who I wanted to be. And that is a big, you know, that's a, I think it's a big issue that many autistic people face because, as you say, this is, I think you touched on one of the most important issues. Economic security and financial security comes from being able to do things with other people. It's extremely rare for someone to become, for example, a multimillionaire completely on their own. Yeah, um, that doesn't happen. And believe me, I've tried to look for examples like that because I was like, okay, <laughs> if I can find just one person, just one, then uh, there, there's hope, you know, then I, should, I can push and, and try to, you know, work on this. But, but implicitly, anything that you want to do to make money, and especially in business, and especially for me as a freelancer, Social skills play a huge role in that. And mm-hmm. it's, 
I feel like there's definitely this perception that like, oh, you know, but, you know, social skills, it's something that you can just practice and you work on and you'll get there eventually. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, I mean, as I said, my TEDx talk, it's like, okay, well, I'm 36 now. When exactly do you think that I'm going to wake up one morning and go, ah, oh, now it all makes sense. Ah, oh, yes, now mm-hmm. finally made sense. It's, it's very hard for, it was very hard for me to accept that that wasn't going to happen. To this day, I feel like there are so many people who still don't accept that, it's not an option for me because, again, as far as they are concerned, the kind of holistic mentality is, oh, but you just haven't worked on it hard enough, you know, right. or you just haven't done enough, you know, or right. why don't you try this? I mean, I'm sure you have your own experiences with, why don't you just do this and it'll solve the problem, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, certainly, before I realized that I was autistic, I would get a lot of advice, all of it terrible, unfortunately, <laughs> yes. from my family. <laughs> Many of whom I think are very likely undiagnosed autistics. And I got a whole lot of really bad advice from my father, who, as it turns out, as a white, you know, upper class, middle aged man, interacted differently with the world than, you know, a small Jewish looking woman (laughs) 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 with kind of a. A kind of a squeaky little voice sometimes <laughs> if I'm not using my radio voice. So uh, pretty much every every advice that he gave me, and I think that he meant to give me good advice. Uh, I've got other, other problems with his parenting, but I think he genuinely was trying to help me in that sense. It was just terrible, terrible advice. It did not matter what I wore. It did not matter how I shook somebody's hand when I came in the room. It did not matter how many phone calls I made ahead of time. None of that matters. And what holistic people call social skills, I think, are actually just cultural rituals. Because, as you pointed out, in Germany, many cultural behaviors that we think of as being sort of stereotypically Autistic are also stereotypically German. So if you're going to be extra careful about making sure that you're someplace on time and a few minutes early and everybody else in the meeting is going to do that too, nobody's going to think, oh, wow, that's a little odd. Why didn't they show up late like everybody else does? (laughs) And then if we go into Japan, where eye contact is considered extremely rude most of the time and very forward, Mm then, again, what a social skill is, is completely redefined. So I really would like to change the language around that to be Mm. instead of social skills to be culturally conforming. Mm. I think that's a very valid way of describing it. I think cultural, I, I love this idea of cultural rituals because that's exactly what these things are. It's, there's a certain... The way I described my current therapist is everyone seems to have gotten this, you know, kind of manual early in childhood and they all kind of follow the scripts according to this manual. And as autistic people, we can learn some snippets of that and that helps us to sort of stay under the radar. But ultimately, we never have the full picture. And I mean, I think the important point to mention is that we don't understand why people are acting like that. It makes no sense to right. us. And it's, right. not something that, it's not something that comes naturally to us. It's not so, but it is definitely something that is culturally specific, that you know, things that were completely 
acceptable in South Africa are perceived very differently in Germany. And I've actually been to Japan and I must say, yes, I agree that eye contact is amazing. You know, nobody expects you to make <laughs> eye contact in Japan. It's it's fantastic. I mean, and there's lots yes. of, and there's lots of bowing. There's no touching. There's no handshaking. You know, I know no. this, sounds, this sounds very germophobic, but there's no, you know, sweaty hand contact and that kind of thing. Everything is bowing and there's a great sense of respect for personal space. It's just, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean... And if you want yeah. to sit on your porch and watch the snow fall for an hour, nobody thinks that's strange. Mm. This is absolutely true. So sometimes, you know, I want to tell people who say, oh, well, you just need to learn these social skills. These are people who have never traveled. You know, (laughs) drop them in the middle of Zimbabwe and see how quickly they pick up those social skills. I mean, here they're talking to you, you know, a human being who has learned a completely different language. And, you know, the cultural divide between Zimbabwe, where you... You completely went past that, learned German, went to Germany, and I'm certain learned a lot of manners in Germany. And yeah. you're the one who can't adapt to new <laughs> social this skills. Is, yes. This is, <laughs> you know, this is, I feel like that's a very valid, that's a very valid point to mention is I have recently, I've recently started to reframe some of these beliefs again with the help of a I want to say with the help of a good therapist Wonderful. I think I, I needed that kind of support and backup but I've definitely started to reframe some of the beliefs or assumptions that I have about how society works and I love the fact that you've given me something new as well with the cultural rituals you know because that very very pertinent and something that I'm definitely going to take away from this conversation but I have definitely started slowly started to realize that look the things that people call social skills i mean they aren't necessarily good at them either i i think a lot of it is if you're lucky enough to be in an environment where you know i guess i mean i think it's very flippant to say this but if if you grew up in a place or you were born in a place and you grew up there and people had time to get used to you over time I think mm-hmm. it's going to be much easier for you to find a few people who will accept you the way you are after having the chance to get to know you than when you uproot your life and go halfway across the world. You know, I mean, I think it's always going to be a bit harder. But at the same time, I know that there are many autistic people who have grown up. They've been born in a place, grown up in a place. They've gone to school there. They've gone to university in the same town. They've hang out in the same places and they still struggle with the same issues that I face. So very, very much so. And you know I feel like that's actually quite a bit more painful because mm. you feel like you should be able to do that. Mm. And yeah. and when you can't, it's even more devastating. The stakes are so much higher. I also think that people who grew up in one place and you know, pretty much from the time they were born, you mask in order to try to fit in. Whereas for somebody like me, I've moved 37 times and most of those were before I was 30. 
and my entire family, with a couple of exceptions, and I'm if my family listens to this, I'm going to let you decide who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it to be you who's not autistic, then that's who I'm talking about. So, <laughs> in any event, I think many of us are autistic and so that felt normal to me and so then when you move every year as a kid you're always the odd one out and so it doesn't occur to you that you should have to fit in and something that I've brought up before so I grew up in the 60s and astrology had made this huge comeback at that point and I was born in February and so I'm an Aquarius Well, Aquarians are supposed to be quirky. They're supposed to be nonconformists. It kind of defines that particular facet of being autistic. And so I just thought that astrology worked great. (laughs) (laughs) And that I'm an Aquarian and that I'm not supposed to fit in, that it's kind of my job not to fit in. But I think that when you're in a culture everybody else is fitting in I think it can be incredibly painful and unfortunately that's a lot of times when you see a lot of self-harming and suicide ideation and all of that kind of thing I really actually kind of encourage people who are in that situation where they've been in one town their whole lives to really think about do they want to try living somewhere else (laughs) it won't necessarily be less lonely in terms of having people to hang out with but I feel like being in a drastically different place people don't expect as much conformity from you and so they're not quite as disappointed in you when you fail to do these things that seem so obvious to them now one of the things that I heard Sarah Hendricks say is that Apparently, they've done studies, and holistic people can spot autistic people in, like, under 10 seconds. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. I can't spot other autistic people in under I, 10 seconds. I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. I mean, it's hard enough, it's hard mean, enough clearly, for me to tell the difference nowadays, and I know this is going to sound a little bit... Uh, uh, controversial, but it's hard enough for me to tell whether someone is a man or a woman. I'm just lucky that I don't care. You know, it doesn't make a difference to me. Oh, I can't tell what age people are. I, I'm i also face blind, so prosopagnosia. So if you change your hairstyle, I may not recognize mm. you at all from one day to the next. So it, I was looking in the mirror for 57 years before I knew that I'm autistic. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, when I started art school in my early 20s, and I made friends with somebody, just trigger warning people, I'm going to use the R word, she made friends with me because she thought I was retarded, is what she told me at the time, that she thought I was quote unquote retarded. So I don't know. I wish I could have a listic vision. (laughs) Or... Or have an holistic person break their silence and explain exactly what it is that they're looking at. Now, now to be fair, at the same time, and remember people, I was in my 20s, I thought that she was 
a woman in her 40s who'd raised five kids and was just getting back to school after a long absence. Now, she was also in her early 20s. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. I mean, that does put a lot of things into perspective. (laughs) Right? So, to me, what that clearly proves is that not only am I autistic now, but clearly I was autistic then yes. as well, because she saw something that I didn't see, and I saw something that was not true. I completely misaged her. I, I read her completely wrong. So it feels like we're a different species in terms of the way we process information, the way we think about information, and the way we communicate that information. And, you know, if we had a dictionary... (laughs) Oh, that would be fantastic! Absolutely fantastic. I mean, can you imagine the amount of... I mean, it it would cut these conversations that we all know as autistic people where... You know, there's the, I like to call them revolving door conversations, where you present something, you say a premise, and then the other person says, either they dismiss you, so it's like, no, you know, that's not an issue, or no, but we all struggle with that, or whatever, you know, I mean, I feel like, and then you have to keep putting, you know, saying it again, and restating it, and trying to say it in different ways, and the person still doesn't get you, (laughs) oh, I mean, if I could, if I could just reclaim all of that time that I spent Uh, having those conversations, it would be so, so valuable. (laughs) And the sad thing is, that what they really meant by that was, I don't want to talk about this. That's definitely my impression. That's definitely, my impression is that it's, you know, especially when, and I think you mentioned this earlier that, you know, as autistic people, we're trying to get to the right answer, right? We're not, Mm -hmm. we're not in it to manipulate. We're not in it to, to get a certain reaction out of someone. We're not trying to make a situation turn out the way we want or make a person feel a certain way. We genuinely want to get to an answer that, is correct is yes even if we so don't the, like the answer even if we don't like the answer mm-hmm. if it's correct we will still be able to respect and appreciate it you know and let's talk about why like for me what that means is that there's a question in my head and it will not go away yes <laughs> it won't go away very much so very much so it's, i cannot let things i cannot let things go you know and i feel like other people are just, just you know other people's attitude is oh, just, just, let, yeah, it just let it go just relax let it go, let it just, go. just do, do something <laughs> take your mind off it and it's like um how oh, how do you take your minds off things yeah, because yeah <laughs> i certainly can't and i suspect that part of the challenge is that we do implicitly find the world as autistics we find the world so difficult to understand in the first place that mm-hmm. i mean we're desperately seeking these truths that will give us some sense of security that when we go out into the world we can i mean i think it's very hard to describe but we can go out into the world and feel like ah okay now this is what i have to do to be accepted this is what i have to do to be understood this is what i have to do to feel safe in an interaction because i think the the sense of security and safety is such a a big desire or a big wish that we have that we struggle to express and and of course struggle to get fulfilled so from my perspective i definitely think that we're looking for answers because we found the world so confusing through our interactions with others and i think to a certain extent yes other people 
you know, they respond to us the way they do because they don't want to talk about it, but also because they don't have the answer and they don't like to admit that. And that is, oh. I feel like, one of the biggest challenges to conversations with holistic people. Oh, my god! <laughs> they don't know how to say, I don't know the answer and be okay with that, you know. <laughs> that is a bullseye right there. That is an absolute bullseye because I have no problem mm, saying I don't know. Same. I'm very willing to, to acknowledge that I don't know the answer. Because to me, isn't that exciting? When we don't know, oh, that's another topic of inquiry. That That's another rich vein of mm. research that we could be pursuing. Whereas holistic people, for them, it's a loss of faith. Yeah, it seems somehow. to have some, it has a very strange effect on them when they don't know. That. I've, I, in fact, I actually think that's one of the reasons why a lot of the social interactions that I've had have ended. When, you know, we get to this point where people feel like, I have a question and they don't have an answer and they feel like they failed somehow. And I'm like, no, I think that's just a, I mean, I can't imagine that we all, are we all walking around thinking we have the answer to everything? Cause I'm certainly not. And I feel like I spent, I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time reading about a vast number of topics. I, I tend to have more time than the average person because I'm, you know, I have a deficit or a lack of social relationships. And yet I still would never say that I feel like I have the answer to everything. Absolutely not, by no means. In fact, I'm fascinated by the stuff, as you said, I'm fascinated by the stuff that I don't know. Because it means, oh, there's something that I can go and explore and learn about and investigate. And as you said, like, you know, it's I, I get to fill up my time with this interesting line of inquiry and, oh, these questions and, oh, what am, what am I going to discover along the way? And... Yeah. Well, maybe we just have to kind of make an assumption when we're talking to an holistic that they think they're supposed to have the answer to everything. Okay. Pro tip. Yes. <laughs> Pro tip, autistics. <laughs> the holistic across they, they, from they you. They probably want to have the answer. This, and I think it's these... It's these things, it's these things that make life so, at the same time, so fascinating, but also, or they, mm -hmm. yeah, so they make things fascinating, but at the same time, they make them complicated because there's an expectation that, or at least for me, there's an expectation that in a conversation, we are trying to make an effort to meet each other's needs. And when it's an autistic, holistic conversation, I feel like you have to go into that knowing that that isn't going to happen. And accepting that. And I, I think autistic people are maybe a little bit more willing to admit that that's going to happen. Whereas holistic people have this attitude of, oh, I don't know, I, I feel like they, they almost want to push. Oh, how can I explain this in a nice way? Just give me a sec. Um, the, the, cl <laughs> the classic example I always have is I say I don't have friends and then you know, the revolving door conversation. Oh, but, oh, but I'm your friend. And I'm like, well, no, we're not friends. Cause we don't, you know, I, I don't trust you. Mm. I, that's, you know, um, and then, and then obviously oh, that, you know, gosh. that usually leads to the end of the conversation, but you don't know, it doesn't, that doesn't but, but I mean, well. but I mean, if they, if they manage to get past that stage of the conversation, then they, then they generally tend to go into, oh, but mm. I also don't have friends. So it's like, they almost have this drive to make you feel like, mm -hmm. oh, but you're not that different from me. And, I feel like the challenge for me is then convincing them that no, 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 
it is a very different experience for me. It's it's not the same as what you're describing. And it's very hard to get right. that across because, again, it's almost like they have this drive to say or to make you feel like, no, 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 you're not that different or you're not that included. And I'm like, no, but I, I, I've known since I was born that I'm different. It's not a secret. I, I'm not shy about it. I'm not ashamed. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, struggling with it. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I sort of feel like if you people could come to terms with it, we, this would go so much Oh my gosh, right? If, if all of you, yes, if all of you would fix all yourself. of your issues. Yes. <laughs> yes, if you folks would just kind of deal with the fact yeah. that we're not all oh. the same. Yeah. Well, you know, what that kind of reminds me of, like talking about the pressure that the holistic feels. So you got to you got to study uh, cellular yeah, microbiology yeah. as a doctor. In cellular structure, like if there's too much salt outside of a cell and not as much inside the cell or too much water or whatever it is, there's this pressure that the cell feels to make it be equal Mm -hmm. on both sides. And I wonder if there's a parallel for that for allistic people where they're going around and they feel a social pressure. And it makes them uncomfortable when the pressure on one side of that social wall is different than on the other side. So if we are accepting them, then perhaps they feel a social pressure to accept us. And they don't have any tools other than holistic tools to make that happen. So they are saying things to us that would be comforting to another holistic person who was feeling on the outside socially. That's interesting because I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly what they're doing. It's just that I've never realized that, that other people would find those things comforting because I can't understand how that, you know, I, was like, I, understand, I can't understand how that would be the case to begin with. But, but yes, yes. No, because it feels dismissive. It feels dismissive. And, Yet the thing is that for them, the idea that they would be irrevocably Mm. different is so terrifying, perhaps much more terrifying than being uh, dismissed. In fact, a dismissal would be more comforting than the understanding that there is something truly different about them that cannot be assimilated. That's a very powerful thing to say, actually, because I think being aware of that drive, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, I honestly feel like a lot of the things that we are saying here, I feel like it helps our understanding and I, you know, I, I, I hope that they're holistic mm-hmm. listeners, you know, to this podcast. And I hope it helps their understanding. Mm-hmm. But it, it sort of, it highlights the fact that there's really very little one can do other than, yeah, try to learn to be more tolerant, I guess. You know, I... Well, I am really, really hopeful because, you know, 10 years ago, mm. nobody knew what clinical depression was. And now everybody knows what clinical depression is to the point where, unfortunately, autistics often get diagnosed with clinical depression when mm-hmm. that's, it's actually situational depression. If, if we can't get a job and we can't make friends and we can't 
bond in the meaningful ways we need to bond, yeah, we're going to be depressed about that. And it's totally appropriate to be unhappy about those things. So, but I belong to these groups on Facebook and every day new people come in saying, oh gosh, I'm... 32, I'm 45, I'm 56, I'm 75, I'm 82, Mm. and I just found out that I'm autistic. And this incredible wave is happening, like this huge awakening that I don't think has ever happened in the history of humankind, that we're reaching out to each other across oceans and finding our tribe And I think it's a really hopeful time for that reason. We're seeing people like Greta um, Thurston, Thurman? Thurnberg, Thurnberg. Thurnberg, thank you, thank you. It may be Thurnberg, I'm not going to claim that I know the pronunciation, but I know exactly what you mean. You know better than me, clearly better than me. (laughs) Where we have people like Greta Thurnberg representing autism and the autistic community, and there's currently... I feel like a problem in terms of the label Asperger's because the autistic community is gradually becoming uncomfortable with that label for a number of reasons. And yet it is the label that most people understand out in the world. And so I find myself a lot of the time saying to people, well, I am what used to be called Asperger's and is now classified as autism. And we have to sort of do this little sidestep yes this uh this little dance yes. of, exactly. of explaining of explaining what you've actually been diagnosed with and i think that is a very important point to mention because i do think that unfortunately within the autistic community itself what i noticed initially when i was especially just after i was diagnosed and i kind of started mm-hmm. i mean i didn't you know, it, as I say, it took me a couple of years to try and, you know, connect with people online or be open about mm-hmm. it or anything like that. But when I did, I definitely got the impression that from the material that was already available, there was this attitude of, oh, well, I have Asperger's syndrome. So I'm not I'm not like the other autistic people like they, you know, the ones that you guys think are abnormal mm-hmm. and everything. I can kind of pretend to be normal. You know what I mean? And, and this This is such a dangerous, it's such a dangerous mentality because I think creating further division within the community is not helpful for anyone. I do understand that there is, we do have a problem with how autism is represented in the media and in society and all those kind of things. But I don't think the solution is to look at people who have various behavioral difficulties or intellectual disabilities or who maybe just have had less exposure to social life and look at them and say, no, you guys are more severe than we are. No, we all have the same challenges. The challenges are the same across the board. The difference is what are the comorbidities you have, you know? And that's, Mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the critical point is that there is definitely this, this idea that autism and, you know, what used to be called the R word. Yeah. What used to be called mental Mm -hmm. retardation, which is now just Mm -hmm. called intellectual disability. Those, those two, the two are not the same, but they can mm-hmm. coexist. They can. They can also and not they coexist. they can change over time. Yeah, I mean, it, and it doesn't make anyone less oh, of a absolutely. person. I think that's the absolutely. key thing. Let's say that again. It does not make you less of a person. 
number one. Number two, people who are not speaking out loud for whatever reason often are not appreciated for the fact that they can have perfectly fine intellectual functioning going on. And this is a problem even as people age, if they have a stroke or lose the ability to talk for some reason, or even if you just go into a country where you don't know the language, Mm -hmm. people start talking to you like you're a baby. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So true. So true. I mean. But I want to pivot a little bit. And so you are still living in Germany. And how long has it been since you accepted your your autistic self? So I would say four, four years. Four years. Yeah. And do you still, is it still scary to go out? in Germany right now? Is it still as xenophobic or have things calmed down a bit? I want to say, I I honestly, I don't notice it anymore because now I've taken the, okay, again, this is not meant to be insulting. (laughs) Again, I'll preface this by saying this is not meant to be insulting. I observed how German people deal with each other when they encounter situations in which someone is insulting towards them. When a German person feels attacked or insulted, they really snap back very fast. And yeah, I realized that, oh, you know, if, I mean, if they're all doing it, I can do that too. And I think when I adopted that mentality and when I decided that if someone is going to be mean to me, I'm going to, you know, tell them off immediately, it stopped being a problem because now I wasn't afraid. When I go out now, I'm not afraid of those things happening because if they do happen, I know how to deal with them. And it is very effective. What really helped me in this sense was also watching more German television because I feel like the way that I stumbled upon all of this information was because I found, and I don't know if this is probably something that a lot of autistic people do, but we watch reality shows. I don't know if you do Mm. that. I can't handle, I can't handle television at all. Don't worry. No, no shade. No, (laughs) no shade, no shame. Really, it's... It's the. I think it's the pits of. Te- it shows you the pits of society. I feel. You know. I mean. I, I'm not watching it because I think it's an intellectually stimulating well, exercise. I, I, but. I, I don't have any. I, and and that that lack of shame goes both ways. It, you know. I I feel like it gives people really valuable information that I think would be helpful for me in some situations. So we just got to use the tools that we click with. Yeah. And. So I can totally understand how watching reality TV would be helpful for you in understanding the kinds of attitudes that people are going to bring to the table when you engage. And it really them. did. It helped a lot. I mean, as you've said, I think it's, <laughs> I'm not watching this because it's engaging television or, you know, intellectually right. stimulating, right. but it definitely right. gave me additional insight into how the society worked and what values German society has. And I think it is very important to mention that the vast majority of German people want to be seen as open towards the rest of the world obviously because of their i mean they have such a they have such a terrible history we all know that that image is still so prevalent throughout the world that the majority of german people want to go out of their way to show that they're not like that but there's a minority who feel like they're entitled to behave the way that they want to and yeah and when you learn how to deal with them life here becomes much easier that just makes me so happy sarah i just love that <laughs> That you and so now you can go out. Oh, absolutely! Oh, absolutely! I have no issues with that side of life now. Yay! 
kids. Yay, I'm so happy to hear that. So what video games are you playing? I play, I want to preface this by saying I play the most violent video games there are, the first person shooters. I, those are my favorites. Oh, fun. Um, fun. So tell us, let's be specific. I am currently like. playing a, a relatively old game called Medal of Honor. Medal of Honor Airborne. Uh-huh. It is duly fascinating to me because it's a video game, but it's also set in the Second World War, and it is very. They've they've made it very accurate in terms of a lot of the factors. But I want to say that the game I'm playing that to kind of ease myself back in because I've got a game by Tom. It's a Tom Clancy game called Splinter Cell. That's also a little bit older mm-hmm. than most people now are playing. But again, very kind of. You are the hero in the game. And I mean, I love that about these. <laughs> I love that about Isn't the first person shooters. Yeah, you're yeah. the hero and you yeah. get to save the world. And yeah, so those are my kind of games. Um, there are a whole lot of new ones that I'm probably going to invest some money in. But I will say I don't, one, I don't play online. And two, I'm not, I'm no longer in the kind of, you know, I want to say the university environment where everyone was competing to be the first one to play a certain game. So sure. if a game is 10 or 15 years old, I don't care. I'll still play it. If the gameplay oh, is yeah, good. yeah, I don't care. Yeah. 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 No, a good game is a good game. Yeah. I'm and what currently, are you playing? Yeah. Uh, I'm currently hooked on Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Oh, wow. Good graphics, not, I assume. Oh, so beautiful <laughs> sailing Just... the Aegean with my crew of, of Amazonian priestesses so and going cool. around killing rapists all over ancient Greece. I can't tell you how fun it is. Um, And I love Greek mythology and I love that time period, the Peloponnesian War and all of that. And and it's a phenomenal game. It is not first person. It's definitely third person. So if you don't mind the third person, I recommend it really highly. It's, It's a game that you can play offline. It's single player. And if you have any interest in ancient Greek culture at all, it's it's just a heck of a fun time to play. I played a lot of World of Warcraft for oh, about okay. 10 years, and that's a super fun game where I could be a mage and basically kill people with purple sparkles, which, you know, always is cool. really my always idea of the cool. time. I mean, that sounds amazing. <laughs> But you know, even even the best games after ten years, you gotta play something. Yeah, you gotta play. Yes, that's (laughs) that's kind of where I'm at with that now. But I really feel that for me, video games they help me push the reset button on my own brain. So if I'm spinning out, if I'm having too many repetitive thoughts, if I can't knock my brain off of whatever it's currently obsessing over, which may not be a useful thought. Then if I go and play a video game for half an hour, an hour, then I come out of that rested and refreshed. And they really help me deal with frustration and aggression if I can go in and slaughter. (laughs) I I can definitely say, I can definitely say that without video games, I'd be a much more aggressive person in real life. They have helped so much. I know I'd have to learn how to do boxing or something, and I'd be terrible at it because I'm not coordinated at all. Okay, Sir Isa, we have had an amazing, wonderful, long conversation, and I don't, it doesn't matter to me how long my discussions are. I will just post the whole thing with a few edits, mm-hmm. you know, to make us sound a little smarter. Uh, <laughs> please do, please do. Love that. <laughs> 
And I would really love to talk to you again sometime. Before we go, though, what would you like to say to our audience? Yeah, I think, especially after having this discussion with you, I feel like it's very important to tell people that having an autism diagnosis or getting an autism diagnosis is something that is not necessarily always a blessing initially. Uh, But it's very important to realize that it does, even though it closes some doors, there's so many doors that it opens. There's so many good things about being autistic. There's so many wonderful qualities that we have as autistic people that the rest of the world isn't even aware of. And they may not be able to tell us. And I think it's so valuable to be in contact with other autistic people and mm-hmm. have that kind of support network. Because even if we can't find each other in real life, as you so wonderfully pointed out, you know, we, we live in a time where we can connect with people in spite of physical constraints. And it's so important for us to do that because that is the way that we will learn what makes us wonderful rather than what makes us different. And I think a lot of the things that we've said during this talk have been, you know, things that a lot of autistic people should be proud of, like having an an analytical mind or being able to, and being willing to seek to understand and seek to answer questions. I think those are wonderful qualities. And I think they're often made to seem like they're troublesome or irritating or annoying. And especially as women, I mean, I think, wow, as women, we face a unique challenge because the, you know, the traits that we have are so usually associated with men. But I would love to see autistic people be bothered less by all of these kinds of things and just focus on what makes your life awesome and what makes you awesome as a person and embrace that and enjoy that and live it out however you want to. Yeah. Well, that sounds wonderful, Sarai. That that sounds like excellent advice. Sarai, will you be my friend? I, I think we can be friends. I, I, I feel like I can trust you. We will, we will have to see over time if the loyalty holds. But I think as an autistic person, <laughs> um, you're probably more likely to be loyal than the average person. So tentatively, uh-huh. I'm going to say yes. But, you know, as, as, as we do in Germany, there'll have to be some paperwork. <laughs> there'll have to be some paperwork involved. <laughs> Expect something right, in the mail. <laughs> you go ahead. You send me the paperwork. I'll sign the dotted line. That'll be fine. <laughs> there we go. Um, That's hilarious. Uh, thank you for being actually autistic, Sarai. great pleasure. Thank you so much for, for just doing all of this. I think this is an amazing initiative i think it's something that we desperately need in the actual autistic community and i'm so glad um that it's someone as you know dynamic and as i say articulate and intelligent and as fun as you i mean i think you thank you thank you very much you're you're doing an absolutely great job and please continue and yeah you know let's stay in touch and speak again I feel like the luckiest person ever to have figured out a way to get to talk to all these amazing people from all around the world. It's, uh, I feel like I'm cheating somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks Thank for sharing so it much, with Sarah. us. Thanks for sharing it with us. Oh, <laughs> so my pleasure. So my pleasure. All right. Okay, dokie. Yeah, it was a great okay, chat. Bye. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>